Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we sit down with Michael Zimmerman of Junius Lindsay Vineyard and welcome North Carolina. Michael fell in love with old world wines when he was in the foreign service and had plenty of time to visit France. While he visited all areas of France, the Rhone is where his heart and palate lies. His love for Rhone-style wines comes through in the wines that you'll find on his tasting sheet. Everything from Roussan and Vignet to classic Rhone blends. The wine mouths are also back in this episode. They talk to us about how you can get the most out of your wine tasting through five simple steps. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So today we're here with Michael Zimmerman at Junius Lindsay Vineyard in Welcome, North Carolina. Michael, welcome to Cork Talk. Thanks a lot. Thank you guys for coming. We're excited to be here. So Michael, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I started this place, uh, the, the vineyard, in 2004. Uh, I had uh, lived overseas for 16 years in the Foreign Service, spent a lot of that time in France, and uh, grew to love French wines, in particular that of the Rhone Valley in uh, southern France. So when I came back here, uh, settled on the home place, which has been in the family for about 150 years. So that was the ideal place to start, and that was when a lot of the places in North Carolina were starting up with vineyards, and, and so it made a, a natural transition for me to try to keep the farm and the family, and uh, maybe pass it on at some day to, to at some point to my children. Very cool. So, what was what was the farm before you planted the vineyard? What, what was well? Here? The question we most often get is, "Did you grow tobacco?" And the answer is, "No, we did not." <laughs> Never tobacco. Uh, never tobacco. Uh, so we didn't get any of the, the bright leaf money, uh, which is a shame, but that's, uh, um, it, it was, uh, we grew, grandpa grew grains and hay and, and sweet potatoes, and then we migrated somehow into uh, raising chickens. So. And that's, that was what my, my brother and I were the, uh, were the uh, main farm hands here at the time, and so I escaped when I was 18 <laughs> and went to school and then went right into the Foreign Service at, when I was 21. So. so talk a little bit more about living in France for all those years. Well, I, I was stationed in Africa and Europe and a lot of the time never stationed in France okay. uh, per se, but uh, when you're when you're over in Europe, it's very easy to get to France, and it's very sure. easy to fall in love with uh, French wine, and one thing led to another, and that's how that all happened, you know, and, and it was over a period of 16 years, you can spend a lot of vacation time in, in, in vineyards and drinking wine and, and getting to know what it's all about. It's a, you know, the, the French have two or 3,000 years of experience at this, and if you don't get it in that time, you probably should give it up. But, uh, they're doing something right. They're doing something right, and they probably know a good bit more about it than the rest of us do. So that's, 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 the, that's my introduction to wine. Okay. So of all Strictly those... French, strictly Old World, okay. strictly Southern France. So. Strictly Southern France. So you didn't Bur visit Burgundy or... Well, yeah, you have to visit Burgundy and Bordeaux, and and you know you the Rhone's very close to Provence. So. Sure. sure. <laughs> but I fell in love with Rhone wines. I mean, you know, uh, there are reasons for that, but I thought they were they were they were a lot more varied than the other places in in France. And uh, there's it's it's a, it, it's part of the same culture, but it's it's 
it's different because there are many older families in the Rhone that still do it and have been doing it for five or six or seven generations. Okay. So let's talk maybe a little bit more about what varieties you find in the, in the Rhone Valley in France and how that's different than, than other areas. It, that's pretty clear cut. You In the north, you find uh, Syrah and Viognier. In the south, you find uh, Roussan, uh, Grenache, Mouvedre, and then some of the lesser known uh, varietals that uh, they use for blending in the south. So you in the north, you get the uh, the blend of red and white, which is the only place I know in the world that blends reds and whites, and that's the uh, Saran and Viognier, which are actually interplanted. And uh, I look, I worked for every once in a while in some of those vineyards, which are located on forty-five degree hillsides. Hmm. So you you do not mechanize that; it is all uh, it's all hand labor, and. Uh, you, you, you get a feeling for it, but it's not like when you do it yourself because that changes that changes your perspective in every every way. So before opening or before planting the grapes here, you actually had some experience over in France working with the vines. It's called research, yes. <laughs> <laughs> some people call it drinking, but uh, it's, it's really research. And yeah, I did work in some of the wineries, some okay. of the some of the vineyards. So when did and, you get the idea that you wanted to do this here? Again, that's uh, when, I, when I, I came back to North Carolina in the late 90s, and uh, I got to know, uh, well, by 2003, Childers had started up. That was, you know, next-door neighbors almost. And uh, Childers had brought down one of the truly, probably the best winemaker in, in the East Coast, uh, to run that winemaking operation there. I got to know him, I got to know the vineyard people, and they were tremendous, tremendously helpful. And with Childress there as a, as a destination, that makes it possible for a lot of us to exist. Sure. Uh, which we probably couldn't do on our own. But, uh, you know, uh, 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 the majority of people that we have visiting here are from the Charlotte-Mecklenburg area because here, uh, with Childress, it's the closest place to Charlotte that you can come to be in the Yadkin Valley. So that has made it very nice for us. And that made that decision, and I, I originally went in it to sell, to sell grapes okay. to Childress. And uh, I sold the first vintage of Viognier to him. And uh, then the next year, I said, are, are we okay about uh, you buying the Viognier and a little bit of the Syrah and so forth? And, uh, up until about three weeks till harvest, uh, the answer was, uh, we've got a lot of inventory and we don't need any more Viognier this year. Oh. And I said, okay, what's the next step? <laughs> what's plan B? So uh, Mark Frizzolowski and I worked it out, and I said, well, you just make the wine, and then we'll go from there. And that's where the, our 15-year, 16-year association began. And that's been a wonderful relationship. I rely on him. He... When you, when you have a lot of experience in France, you understand 
that there are two people involved in this and it's the grower and the winemaker. And if the grower has a good year and does his part, the role of the winemaker is kind of to stand out of the way and let the wine reflect sure. the vineyard. Uh, when you've got problems, that's when the winemaker becomes critically important. Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because it, it really is very distinctive. You're the grower, Mark's the winemaker. So what gave you the, the passion to be on the grower side? Uh, again, that's a question of the, the, of the land, the farm, the, the home place, being able to save that rather than sell it off into something, you know, uh, which is happening over a lot of North Carolina and South Carolina and Virginia where farms are being sold right. uh, just so that they can develop, you know, houses. Yeah. Uh, so I was hoping that this would work well enough to give my, I have twins that are now 41 years old, and, and I was hoping that that would be enough, or that it would work out well enough that one of them would be interested in coming back here and, and taking over the place at some point in the future. So, jury's still out on that. As my father used to say to me, you'll never come back here, Michael. So I, you know, I proved him wrong, but so maybe they'll prove me wrong. So. Exactly, here you are. Here I am. So let's talk a little bit more about the vineyard itself. So. What varieties did you plant initially, and has there been any change in what was planted originally? Oh, when you—that's a great question, John. When when you start out, it's it's a you, you, right after you start out, you you realize you've made the first or first or second <laughs> or third mistake. So we started with two acres of Viognier. So you realize that uh, that's probably not the best mix you could have if you're going to make wine. Uh, let me back up a second because uh, once you get out of the grape growing m mood, you realize that the money's in the wine, not in the grapes. So therefore, here I am with, with two acres of white Viognier and no reds. Mistake number one. So the next year we planted uh, four acres of Syrah. So now we have an abundance of Syrah over Viognier which is okay, and so it, it went from there. That that's it. It was, it was a it was a three year project really to get to get nine acres planted, and then in 2012 we started we 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 planted an, an additional two acres of uh, Grenache, because that was to make rosé, which it which was in its ascendancy at that point. Uh, and we, we, we perpetually sell out of uh, rosés and we are only one of two producers in North Carolina that make their rosés from Grenache, which is the way it's done in Provence. And in Provence it has to be, by law, 60% Grenache mm. in, the, in the blend. So growing Grenache just for rosé or for, you know, some Oh, uh, well, actually do a varietal, which is very unusual because it, it's, it's primarily a blending grape. Mm. What uh, I, I tell people here that it's it's the largest produced wine or largest produced grape, largest grown grape in the world, even larger than than Cabernet Sauvignon. Right, that's France, Spain, in mm -hmm. all over, everywhere grows Grenache. The other white that you have is Roussan. Roussan. And you have another red as well, Petit Syrah. We have Petit Syrah, and uh, those are all again Rhone varietals. Uh, the uh, the Roussan we put in because it, 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 Viognier is Northern Rhone, Roussan is Southern Rhone. 
uh, Syrah's northern Rhone, Grenache, Mouvedre are southern Rhone. So if you have those covered, you can produce almost anything that the Rhone produces, which again is mostly blending, mm -hmm. but you can produce all of that uh, with, with four or five different grapes. So we do uh, a blend of uh, Viognier and Roussan, which is close to a Cote de Rhone Blanc or a Chateauneuf du Pape Blanc, and that's been one of our most popular wines. So let's talk a little bit more about the differences between Roussan and Vignet. So typically Roussan is something that's known to be much more full-bodied and something a white that really can age. It is a white that can really age, although uh, we uh, had our 10th anniversary of the tasting room uh, last summer, and we pulled out some 2009 Viognier, which is drinking beautifully, mm. uh, which is really shocking because you don't expect a white Right. to last more than three or four years at best. Uh, I went back to the Rhone Valley last October and was talking about Roussan, which, yes, you can sell or lay down or, or age for you know, 10 or 15 years. And they said, no, no, you can do it with Viognier as well. But they are different wines. You've got the Viognier, which is uh, peach and apricot primarily in the, in, in the, in the taste. Roussan is different and it's more acidic. It's in many ways uh, more closely related to a red grape than it is a white. And uh, you'll get some uh, uh, tartness to that, that that you don't find in the other whites, particularly Viognier. So it, it's one of those different things that um, you learn to live, love, and recognize what its, what its, um, what its potential is. And then Petit Syrah, which is often confused as... A little Syrah. A little Syrah. <laughs> the Syrah is spelled differently. It's spelled with an I. Uh, right. So. Actually spelled both ways, but yes. that's okay. It's supposed to be spelled, oh, with a, spelled with an I as the French dictate, this kind of thing. And they also call it Derif. It is Derif uh, by DNA, and most of the Petit Syrah planted in the United States is Derif. So... Um, that is, again, a different... It, it, it's been the easiest thing we grow, okay. which is quite surprising. Yeah. It, is, it tends to be darker than a Syrah or most of your red wines. Uh, it will finish with chocolate sometimes, and at other times it will have a finish that's very close to blueberries. It's all the dark fruits and all that sort of thing that you would expect, particularly the tannins, usually higher in tannin than Syrahs. Sure, yeah. Um, it's uh, it's just a it's just a it's one of the beautiful wines you know it's and and again primarily used for blending and uh, we use it in almost all of our red blends. It adds a depth to it that's uh, truly unusual. And you're still probably one of the only vineyards that does a single varietal Petit Syrah. We're the only growers of Petit Syrah okay. that I know of. and I don't know of any either, but I'm not, I'm not sure that I know <laughs> all Nobody talks about it anyway, so yeah. I, I growers, presume. So there could be someone out there that has a few plants, but if anyone you definitely have the largest planting, I would think, of um, Petit Syrah. We have about an acre of it, and that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the largest, so... If anyone's listening and they grow petit straw, let us Please. know. Let us know. Corrected. Yeah, I, I, I would love. I, would, I would welcome to be corrected. So, so let's talk a little bit about how the the other grapes behave in the vineyard itself. So, since you're a grower, you're really into the whole 
making sure the fruit is the best quality? That's a great question. It, it, it's it's when you start this, you never quite realize how tough it's going to be. And uh, climate here, people ask this, and I say that the, well, the climate is anything but California. It's much closer to what you'll find in, in, in France. Sure. Um, so that, that, that's a help in a way. But we have higher humidity, we have lots of uh, summer rains, which is kind of deadly as far as disease is concerned. Mm. So it, it's, it's all about what happens at two times of the year. It's what happens in primarily January, February, if you have warm weather as we did this year in January, uh, which causes the vines to leave dormancy and to wake up, in which case you've got, uh, you've got April freezes, mm-hmm. and that's, that's, the diffi- that's the most difficult obstacle we face. Then there's the other time, which is June, uh, which is July and August, and that's when you don't want any rain because that also is conducive to disease spreading. And uh, this year in particular was an absolutely stellar year. Uh, and I'm hearing it from all kinds of different sources that this may be the best vintage in the last 15 years. It certainly is our, has the potential, I always have, Yes, of course. I'll, I'll always uh, curb that a, a, a little bit and say, you know, uh, what we've tasted so far is absolutely spectacular. Good. That's exciting. And that's what we're hearing for Virginia. We're hearing for New York, Finger Lakes area in particular. Uh, we talked to someone yesterday from uh, the Finger Lakes area, and he was comp- commenting that 19 was probably their best vintage yes. as well. So I, I think there's no question. East Coast it, in general, it was a very good year. So it, It's going to... It, it's going to surpass what we what we did in 2010 and 2007, which were really the great, really good vintages. And that's a, it's good that we had that year after 2018 where we had all of the rain and it was a very tough year it's for a, most folks. It in, in was a very, it was a, it was a challenge. Let's say that and leave it at that. It was, uh, <laughs> it came on top of, uh, it was three years of, of really, uh, really a lot of setbacks uh we have a lot of folks have a lot of winter damage which has killed a lot of vines and uh one of the things you didn't uh, count on when you started all this was doing 10 percent or 15 percent replantings every year which is a huge cost right now mm-hmm. and uh would that not have been the case but uh Every every place I know that that grows their own stuff has has had a lot of difficulty with mortality. And do you think that's the weather and the climate that's causing causing that? Is the, the yeah again it's that warm it's that warm period in in January or February followed by the freezes in April after bud break, which is generally here about the second week in April, and that's when you start to lose things. But yeah, if you have the freezes in March and April, what you what happens is that the vines start uh, dying from the tips of the sure. cordons back in towards the trunk, mm. and if that goes on long enough and it gets cold enough, you start losing all the vines, and that really happened for three years in a row, and and that's your cumulative damage. 
because we've been losing vines for particularly in those three years, and that, that's 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 the difficult part of it. Right, that's not it's not something you can predict either. <laughs> it is not predictable what in, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, then there's disease, and there's sure. a lot of uh, what's known as Pierce's disease in North Carolina. Right, and we all have a lot of that, and. Uh, I know of some vineyards that are pulling out entire blocks of uh, a particular varietal uh, just because of, of the prevalence of uh, Pierce's disease in those, in those vines. It's, I, I, it, it, to, for us here, it hasn't been that prevalent. I think the, the, our severest problem has been uh, the winter damage. Oh, yeah. So assuming everything goes smoothly, you have no winter damage, you know, no late frost, and no rain toward the end of the season. What varietals are, work really well for you? Um, they're all a challenge. <laughs> uh, I know places that have pulled up all their Syrah because it's so vigorous. Mm. It's expensive to grow because you have to maintain the, 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 the vines, the, head, the, the, the canopy, everything. And it's much more labor intensive than most other varietals. Mm -hmm. right. Uh, Viognier is temperamental. Uh, the French are growing less and less Syrah and more Mouvedre. And when I look forward, uh, we're going to do some planting in, of Mouvedre in, in 21. That's exciting. Uh, uh, simply because it's, it's, it's more adaptive. It's more... Uh, uh, cold tolerant, mm. um, it and it blends beautifully. So that's one of the things I'm looking forward to. Very cool. That's and they kind great. of have that classic movie, uh, you know, picturesque grape cluster when it comes out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. And more and more people are starting to plant it in North Carolina. So there's there's a few plantings of it that we know of, know. especially in the valley, Yakin Valley. So right. I, I and I would have gotten some this year, but I couldn't find any vines. Mm. Maybe that's why. Because it could be. <laughs> other folks are planting. They said no stuff. problem for 2021. I said, okay. All right. Fine. Yeah. Block out the little rows that you want to put them in. I, well, I've got places to put them. <laughs> <laughs> are there any other varieties that you're looking to add? Oh, uh, maybe some Marsan. Really? Now I know round our, out the three whites. In our conversations, we've talked before about how you really don't like Marsan. So, so let's much. talk about how Marsan <laughs> is so different from the other two. So. Well, it, it, it's just, it, it's a little more fickle, but, but, but the reason that I haven't planted it was because I couldn't find the right rootstock for this climate. Okay. And okay. so you rely on the people that, uh, that sell, the, sell the vines to tell you about this stuff. And, and you know, again, if you want to do it, you've got to do it uh, a year, two years, three years in advance. Sure. So I'd like to have a little bit of it, not a whole lot. Right. Well, I would love to have more Roussan because I think, you know, it, I, I would like to see that catch on somewhere. It's just, uh, it's a favorite of mine. It makes such a great wine, too. Yeah, it mean, makes it's, such a great wine. It's, it's hearty, it's aromatic, it pairs well with food, it pairs well with a day, just any day. Yeah. That and uh, grilled seafood is like a marriage made in heaven. Oh, so, yes. Yeah, so. Perfect. So, um, so the Marsan you would just blend, I'm assuming, but but Marsan in general is known for being kind of flabby on its own and, and 
So you, it That's needs... That's why you have Saran, Petite Saran. Exactly. Yeah, so it needs help. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, we did a, a blend this year of, uh, of Grenache, uh, Petite Syrah and Syrah and called it GPS, which is clever. It's the, the label sells a lot of wine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a take on the uh, Grenache Syrah Mavedra. Right. That's a that's kind of middle ground in in, in the Rhone Valley. Yeah, very well. So made. that, uh, but it, it it's 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 just a beautiful wine. Uh, it's been it's become our biggest seller. And we featured that last September for the uh, NC Wine Chat that we did, and it was well well received during that chat too. So it was. It's a, it's a very it's a very good wine for sure. Yeah, but it'll be nice when you can actually do. We actually we worked on that for about eight weeks in different proportions of the blending hmm. to get it close to a GSM, and it's almost a, I tasted a GSM, and it's it's close to a dead ringer. It's really, really nice. So let's go ahead and take a quick little break. And then when we come back, we'll talk about some other stuff about the tasting room and kind of move on to other Maybe a little bit more about rosé. And more about rosé, too. That's true. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Welcome, Jesse and Jessica. How are you two today? We're great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for joining us. What's the topic for this episode? Today, we're going to be diving into the anatomy of wine. Oh, that's Specifically perfect. about tasting wine, the best part. Yes. Awesome. Who doesn't love tasting wine? Only terrible people that we don't <laughs> want to be friends with. <laughs> so, I mean, is it? tell us a little bit about that. Is it just as simple as, uh, you know, sipping on it? That's yes. what we thought when we started. No. <laughs> so there's more. There's, like wine, there's so much more to it. Um, so there, it's really an art and a science behind it. Um, so we're going to frame this a little bit with the five S's, which are not unique to us. Uh, this is kind of industry wide, but it's helpful, a helpful mnemonic for remembering what you should do when you drink wine. So the five S's are see, sniff, swirl, sniff, sip. See, yeah. Easy sniff, enough, right? Swirl, <laughs> Say that sniff, five times fast. Sip. Okay. <laughs> Sniff, twister. So sniff's in there twice because it's a pretty important one. Um, actually, more important than sipping. But so we'll talk about each one of these a little bit. So C, you're gonna look at the wine and kind of get an initial impression of it. Obviously about color, rim variation, which is probably not something we're gonna get into right now. Yeah. <laughs> Legs, which we might get into a little bit. You know, making sure there's no obvious sediment or cork floating around in there if you're unlucky or lucky maybe um so see you know so you're holding it up to a white background or the light to kind of get an initial impression so sniff you're gonna stick your nose in there get acquainted with your wine and you're doing this before you swirl it because you want to see how it changes and opens up once you've swirled which is the next s Um, and this is just aerating the wine so getting oxygen in there to help open up the wine. So now do you have a preferred swirling method? Well, I'd like to be able to swirl with one hand and wildly do it with my, you know, mid conversation. I'm just like, oh yeah, I can totally do this. But I'm really more of a set it on the table and splash it around (laughs) kind of gal. Because that's uh, a lot of uh, yeah. So it's really hard for me to do it just holding the glass in the in the air. 
so hard. People that can do it make it look so easy. Well, and then you try just to hold the stem instead of like heating up the wine with your hand. So hard. Very hard. But yeah, that swirling step is a really important step. So then you're going to sniff it again. You're getting your nose back in there and smelling, seeing, you know, how it's kind of opened up, hopefully. And you really want to get your nose right into the glass, right? Oh, yeah. It's not it's not like hovering over the, the rim of the glass and and just there. You want to get it right in and do a big sniff in. It's not like you have leftover food in the refrigerator and you're, you know, cautiously approaching it. <laughs> yeah. And so this is giving you, you know, an introduction to the nose of the wine, which is how the wine smells and therefore how we perceive its taste. There's different flavors that when you're thinking about the nose like so if you've ever been to a wine tasting people are always like oh yeah I get a hint of elderberry and tarragon and and I'm like I don't know that I've ever had any of those things and good for you for smelling that but I just don't get it but it helps if you kind of can categorize the nose into different areas you know thinking about what fruits and herbs or maybe floral notes you're smelling thinking if there's any like yeasty smells in there like a cheesier nut smells or even i don't know like oak smells and that barrels, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah and then getting into the the oaky like baking spices that kind of thing you know seeing if you can smell anything like that in the nose because a lot so, of yeah. the large part of what we taste is actually what we smell first is that true exactly i can't remember the exact percentage of breakdown but Yes, smell and taste are directly correlated. Right, which is why you can't taste anything if you plug your nose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a sinus infection last year, and I couldn't breathe through my nose. And I went to a wedding with an open bar, and they had a great wine selection. And it was so sad because everything just tasted the same, and it was maybe the worst day in my life. Just ask for a few to-go bottles, and maybe they'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) What's the best descriptor you guys have heard for a wine? Oh, man. Oh, hmm. Well, best as in good or best as in bad? Like most outlandish or most accurate? <laughs> as in ridiculous. Yeah. Like <laughs> There's no way you got that out of there. <laughs> yeah, I think bug spray is interesting. We had a we, we, we encountered someone who maybe had a sinus infection going on at that time, but it was really more of like an herbaceous rosemary, but they said it was bug spray. And we're like, really? <laughs> Maybe they're listening. Maybe not. We'll, we'll leave names out of this one. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, you know, and that's the great part about wine tasting is it is very subjective. So you're not wrong. I mean, maybe they smell bug spray. Yeah. That's maybe they have a rosemary flavored bug spray that you want. <laughs> one of those au naturel bug sprays. So, yeah. so when you go to taste wine, most of the time the the tasting room staff will will try to give you descriptors or maybe the, the the tasting notes that they hand you have descriptors of what you were expected to smell and taste on the sheet do you do you look at that before or do you try to not look at that until after you've done your uh, initial five s's and then maybe oh yeah i think of a tasting spirit guide aka somebody who's working in a tasting room is doing a good job. They're going to they're not going to lead you down that path. They're going to give you the information and set it up for you so that you can get there on your own. And that's so I prefer not to have the tasting sheet necessarily in front of me that Ooh. says, "Oh, the cranberry, raisins." Right. Uh, you know, vanilla because it's very suggestive. Yes, so if you is. see it, you right. something in your brain clicks and you kind of force yourself to smell that. Exactly. Right. 
mm, the power of suggestion like, is, is open-ended yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I, I agree I, I if it's in front of me I, I I like seeing what the wine is and if there's any details about how it was technically made so hey it's French oak or you know it's stainless steel or surly or those types of things that's the information I, I like to have but I don't necessarily like, like to have okay you're gonna get fig and honey right. and vanilla and whatever you know so um after the fact that's fine but right. before i taste it no yeah. i don't really want to see that or yeah. hear it. and it's hard because wines kind of have their characteristic aromas so mm -hmm. yes. you never know if it's that specific bottle of wine that Correct. is that or if it's oh this is a merlot and merlot typically smells like blackberries mm -hmm. or what have you so we've gone through sea sniff swirl and sniff the last one yeah. is sip you said right uh, sip. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because <laughs> yes, that isn't, I mean, I was saying that sniff is really important, but sip is the best us of the five. So you finally, after all that work of looking at it, smelling it, sloshing it around, smelling it again, you finally get to take a sip. If you haven't snuck one in already. Yeah. <laughs> and looked around like, oops, I definitely broke the rules. Um, so yeah, at this point you're sipping it, but you want to kind of hold it in your mouth for a little bit because you're you're um, checking for the body, which is the texture or weight of a wine. Um, you know, so how's the mouth feel and how, how does it taste at this point? You know, so with body, you can think of it as a range from like, the difference between like skim milk versus whole milk. So that viscosity mm -hmm. or thickness of the liquid. Um, it's a great way of thinking of it. I think you taught us that. <laughs> we can't claim, we we can't claim that ourselves, but uh, we did learn that at a uh, wine conference once that someone yeah. presented on. And so we did share that at the first blogger summit. Uh, and so yeah. I think it's a perfect way to describe what body is. So, because yeah, most people a great have analogy. a variety of milk, skim, low fat and whole. Almond, and so, cashew, soy, rice. Yes, whatever. <laughs> oat um, milk. Oat milk. <laughs> So I think that's a good way to get that into people's minds about how to, how body works. So, mm -hmm. Is there a fine art to sipping as there is with swirling? Well, you don't want to guzzle it. <laughs> One thing. Well, that could be difficult um, too. Because don't of... drink it like beer. Yes. Yeah. We should explain our name wine mouths, right? Comes from the fact that we would love to drink red wine. And if you drink too much red wine or if you're, you know, if your lips are dry or you're bad at sipping, um, you're usually going to get left with that telltale wine mouth, that red stain on your lower lip and maybe your teeth. And so I have heard a, a trick where you can put something on your teeth to prevent it. That's never worked. But I've also heard that you can like, <laughs> I've not done this, so please don't quote me on it, but like stealthily lick the side of your wine glass so that it's like not going to get on your mouth instead. I don't think oh. that's going to work. I read it on a blog once. Interesting. Well, I, um, I think that's a good feature video maybe for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> How to lick a wine glass yeah. to avoid wine mouth. I watched that. <laughs> yeah. So our name wine mouth is because we sometimes have wine mouth if we drink too much red wine. But also we've noticed if you drink a lot of wine, you tend to like to talk about wine. And or just like talk, to talk in general. In general, a lot. And no, we have not been drinking today. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. But yeah, so there definitely is an art to the sipping. Yeah. And sometimes if you're in a tasting room, there could be somebody sipping 
vigorously. Like if you sip and try to breathe in air mm-hmm. at the same time and slosh it in your mouth, mm-hmm. you can do it's that. It's supposed to help, but you look ridiculous. <laughs> so do I don't that know. It. <laughs> the other thing too is if you have a stemmed glass, you shouldn't be holding it by the glass itself. You should be holding it by the stem. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Big pet peeve of mine. When I see, especially if I see people on TV, they always have it by the, by the oh, yeah. glass. I'm like, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Unless you're actually purposefully trying to warm up exactly. a white wine. Exactly. exactly. See, there's always an if. if oh, yes. Of course. Or an Yes, but <laughs> with wine. <laughs> hey, how do you guys feel about aerators for wine? Hmm. So if it's something that, hey, you open it and you know that you probably should have decanted the wine, but you really don't have time for that, then I think it's good to have to pour it through an aerator to, to help open it up a little bit more quickly. Um, but typically we like to decant our wines. We obviously don't do that with sparkling wine, but pretty much anything that we drink, white or red, we decant for at least a little bit uh, before we drink it because we think that helps get that oxygen and that air in there and and helps the wine open up. If it's something that is special, like you're opening a a really special Bordeaux, you're going to want to do that hours ahead, it seems. But if it's a white wine, you know, a few, you know, 15 minutes or so is usually enough to get it where it is. So that's kind of our general rule of thumb we don't use an aerator that often we're more in just using the decanter to do it what joe doesn't see is sometimes if the wine needs to open up a little bit more i will take the wine from the decanter and put it into an aerator before it goes into the glass yeah and then the second glass is usually better so. yeah and so that so they, they both help everyone needs a mat in their life <laughs> a behind the scenes person a secret wine aerator <laughs> you'll never know why it tastes so good i love it Well, Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. You've taken us through the five S's of tasting. See, sniff, swirl, sniff, and sip. Thank you very much for this segment. We look forward to tasting more wine with you in the future. All right, thanks. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram, at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. Okay, so welcome back. We're still here with Michael Zimmerman at Genius Lindsay. So Michael, let's talk a little bit more about rosé. You mentioned uh, you grow Grenache for that, um, but I think you've done some other things with, with the rosé at, at times past. So let's talk about what a typical year looks like, and then if you've got a challenging year, what, what rosé, how you might make the rosé, since it's very popular. It is very popular, and, and we've in the industry, we've been waiting for it to decline, and it doesn't. Right. It just keeps on you know, leading the pack. And we are absolutely out of our rosé this year from uh, 2018. Um, But what we do when we start, uh, one of the most critical things is that you you want to pick early when sugars are low and acid is high. Uh, So we will pick very early in the season for rosés. And uh, the one that we have ready now, unfortunately, because we lost so many of the Grenache vines, we did not have a crop that last year. So we had to make a strategic decision, which was to wind up producing it out of Syrah and Petite Syrah. Hmm. Um, again, picking very early, that was, we picked in, in 
at the first of August, wow. when uh, when sugar levels were extremely low, but uh, uh, the acidity was very high, and it's all cluster pressed, and and that then becomes what makes it what makes it rosé very much in the, the style of Provence. Uh, again, that, that's, that's what I'm hardwired for. And it, it, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a challenge, but it's been wonderful wine. And again, one of our most popular. And it's called Special Delivery. It's called Special Delivery. Uh, we don't, I, I don't remember how we came up with the name. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. <laughs> and how did it become that? Well, the label has a picture of a, of a bicycle with a, with a with a with a bunch of wine bottles in the basket on the front of the bicycle, and I, I really <laughs> one of the hardest things we do is is labels. Um, I've discovered, and I have a woman that I work with in in Burlington who's done all my labels for the last uh, 10, 11, 12 years. So uh, she's been perfect at that. So. Uh, it is called special delivery, and some people will buy it just because they will do uh, uh, do a party for uh, an expectant mother, hmm. and that's where the special delivery comes in. For and those that, for not for the expectant mother. For not for the, for the expectant. No, we don't I advocate. I find it a little odd that we're, people are drinking when the mother can't. <laughs> I, I know, but they, they, wow. it, it goes with the territory. Yeah. So they're there. <laughs> So you've got some other, we've talked a little bit about red blends as well, so let's talk about some of the other wines you have. You, you, we've talked Syrah, Petit Syrah, so we know we have those as, as, as single varietals often, but you've got a number of red blends as well. Actually, the bulk of our production is in blends. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, the French will have told me on ad nauseum that uh, you will probably get two vintages out of a decade that are worthy of a varietal. Having said that, we kind of have to do that every year. Mm -hmm. It's kind of and what Americans expect. It's kind of like what <laughs> Americans expect, but uh, the bulk of our production is 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 really in varietals, and we do a couple of off-dry varietals. We do a port-style wine uh, made almost exclusively from Petit Syrah. Uh, as I said, we do a couple of off-dries, which are again are blends in the white of Viognier and Roussan. And in the case of uh, the reds, it's going to be generally Syrah and Petit Syrah because those are our biggest production. That That's our biggest acreage, and that's where we get most of the So that ideas. is Metro? Metro is, again, an off-dry. And then Second Leaf was the... Second Leaf the is the... Well, there's one called Forget-Me-Not. Oh, that's right. Which yeah. is off-dry. I forgot. That's, that's the... the we call that in, in technical terms an SDPW. Hmm. That stands for Seriously Dangerous Porch Wine. <laughs> oh, we can attest to that. We were here one time and we had a metro. Yes. And we just, it was just after a rainy day, so we were sitting on one of the, the rocking chairs when you had them up there. Facing the vineyard. And before we knew it, the bottle was gone. We're like, yeah, there's a little genie oh, in the bottle that okay. drinks it when you open it. <laughs> 20 minutes I understand later or it. Well, because it's not sweet. I mean, it, it's off dry, but it's off really dry. It's two percent yeah. residual, so it, it, it's it's. And it just emphasizes the fruitiness of the wine itself. It does. You don't taste the sugar sweetness. You taste more of the 
the both flavors of it. Right, exactly. But we, uh, again, we do uh, uh, a number of the, of the blends, and uh, we have a, something called uh, Party Line, which is uh, younger age, very, very, not, very, very much not a very, very short period of time in oak, uh, usually about eight to 10 months. Um, and, but we rely on the different, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's a lot of testing and tasting sure. going on uh, all year long when we're trying to figure out uh, particular percentages and ratios and that sort of thing for what we're doing. And each one of them, uh, each one of them, like uh, the blend of, of uh, Syrah, well, this year it's Syrah and Roussan, uh, again, a red and a white, again, among our most popular wines. And that's Triomphe. That's Triomphe. And that's, again, that, that, that's, that, that takes a lot of, uh, we work very hard to try to figure out the ratios there that we want. And it's not the same every year by, by any stretch. So as you're working through blending and coming up with the ratios with Mark, uh, what is it that you're aiming for? What's your final end vision for those wines? That again is a great question. And, 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 and I spent enough time in the Rhone Valley that I'm really hardwired for their blends. and. I know what I want them to taste like. We don't always get there, but we're we're awfully close to it. And 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 it, it, it's you know this is not exactly horseshoes, but maybe it is. <laughs> uh, when we want, uh, we 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 try to keep the taste the same. But that, that, that's where the blending and the ratios come into play because what works one year doesn't work necessarily the next. Right. So what's your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we ask that of everyone. I know you do. Uh, I, I've, I've gotten criticism because I say I, I don't ever answer that question, but uh, <laughs> that's not true. Um, what I fell in love with was, was Viognier. In France, uh, and I, you know, I said that if if there could only be one grape left in the world, I would really like for it to be Viognier. Mm. It pairs well with almost anything. It's one of the most versatile wines, one of the most versatile grapes that I've ever come across. Unfortunately, it's the it's it's the most fickle. Yeah, it's Oftentimes not like growing Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris. Or, Sauvignon Blanc, it's just not that way. It's just, it's just, you can get two tons an acre one year and not a half ton the next. Mm. Just depends on what happens. It, it's one of those things that, that, that's just peculiar to the grape. We love Viognier. It's, it's fantastic. <laughs> There's not much more. Uh, the, this year's, the 19 Viognier will probably be a reserve. It's that good. Oh, wow. Excellent. Uh, I took my daughter to France uh, because she'd not been there this year and or last year, and we sat in Condrieu, which is the home of Viognier. Mm -hmm. 
and drank Viognier and Conview, which is like a dream come true, and I'd forgotten how <laughs> wonderful it really is. <laughs> One day we'll get there too. Yes. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your tasting room. So when, when it was opened, it was the only open air tasting room in North Carolina. There have been a few that have opened that have at least partially outside. Now. Right. But, you know. uh, but talk about how you made that decision and how, what are the pluses and the minuses <laughs> of that decision? Well, I had an architect at the time who said, well, okay. You probably will want it uh, open air. That's a cost-saving measure. Sure. Uh, but in order to operate year-round, you'll have to put a basement in with a cellar, which we finally did. And uh, so that's that's what that's how we operate now. Except we now have vinyl curtains in the open air portion, which uh, which is its own headache. Sure, but uh, yeah, we, we the, when 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 it was built, it was it was elevated so that the uh, the tasting room was above the level of the vines, and it faces west, which is your prevailing wind, so that there's always a airflow in there. The architect said, "Well, this is what it's going to look like because it's in the shape of a Swiss cross. It's a it's a completely right. symmetrical cross." That's one of the things if I could do over again, I really would do, because it's not it's it, you 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 really could I could really use more space. Okay. But uh, he said it's supposed to look like a Victorian train station, and so everybody can wait at the train station waiting for the train to run and watch the vineyard and so forth and so on. And I bought into it, so there you go. So today when we were coming in. <laughs> We came in from a, a direction that we don't usually come in, and I, and it's probably because there's no crops, and I could actually see the, the tasting room from that angle, and it definitely does look like a Victorian train station. It does with from the buttresses coming and down, stained glass over. window, and all yes. that stuff. Yes. So it's it's a it's, it's a very fun. it's a very uh, fun place to visit and a very unique. Experience. It is it is uh, probably unique, yeah. and, and it's really comfortable year round too. I mean, in the summertime, like you said, you get that kind of western breezes. breeze always there. We drank the metro, just kind of enjoying that breeze, and then uh, yeah, but that was a cooler day. Yeah, that's true. Typically, we would drink a Viognier or a Roussan or yeah. Second Leaf or something like that. <laughs> and then in the in the winter time too, I mean, it's you have the vinyl curtains, you have heaters that you have to put in here. It's not cold. You're you know, it's comfortable. Yeah. True. <laughs> I'll let you guys talk. I, you know, I, just tell me how wonderful it is. I, you know, that, that's one of the things you learn is, is uh, there are not a lot of makeovers and you wish there were. Mm -hmm. And uh, you never know enough when you start to, to do it right. So, Well, especially at the time that you started there weren't that many people to go and talk to and to, Correct. to figure out right. what to do. So, and no one, I guess, at the time was doing an open air thing. So, <laughs> I think that in 2003, 2004, there probably weren't more than 15 or 20 places in North Carolina. Right. Now we're well over 200, it seems. Now they're 200. And, and so that's, that I hope is the future. It would, it would, uh, uh, we're in something called the Southern Gateway to the road, to the to the Yadkin Valley, because we're the most southern part of it. And uh, uh, in Davidson County, we now are up to six different places. Uh, 
and uh, obviously we are not in competition. Mm -hmm. Everybody's really in collaboration because everybody could stand to have more traffic than sure. we do. And each of you have are different and have something different to offer people too. That's great. From, from the wines to the experience, that sort of thing. So right. that's, that does make it a unique destination. It, it, it is a it is a it, it's a nice destination. It, it's I wish we were as crowded. Well, they're not crowded in the Yadkin Valley. You 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 go up there and you still wander around because vineyards tend to be out and out of the way places. They are. Absolutely. That's part of the it's not Napa, it's not uh, Finger Lakes, it's not right. Long Island, it's right. none of those places where they're vineyard after vineyard after vineyard after vineyard, it doesn't happen here. The so. only area where that is starting to happen is like the Swan Creek area. That's a little bit that's correct. Starting and, to see yeah. more, and there's more and more that are coming in that area too. So we will have a little bit of that, but and then there's a few places over in Polk County and Triumph the Hills that are fairly close together. But again, like you said, it's very, very few. Everything's kind of spread out. But that's Everything's because kind it's of spread out. And, and, um, you know, in, in Washington State near Seattle, they have a place, uh, I can't think. Wittenville. Uh, since all the vineyards are located to the, to the east of there, right. where nobody lives, right. uh, they've designated this place so that all the wineries are represented there and I wish we could do something like that but I don't know whether that, you know that that's uh, well that's a question of where you would put it right right North Carolina's a big state so. North Carolina's a big state <laughs> and you would have Greensboro Winston-Salem uh, Charlotte, Asheville, Raleigh. Yeah. Well, mm, something more central. Yeah, probably central more would central. Be the triad would be more central for sure. Yeah, that would be that would be that would be a dream come true is to have uh, either have more of us or or both have more of us mm -hmm. or have a central place where we could set up and economically do tastings. Yes. In an urban in, in an urban setting, I mean some of the some of the vineyards I think have done that. Uh, but very few because of, I, I, I presume that it's a question of cost. I would imagine so. So what else would you like to talk about, Michael? One of the questions that you mentioned is what have you learned and, and uh, what have you learned from 16 years of doing this? And, and one of the questions that, that we all ask each other is if you had it to do over again, would mm. you do it? <laughs> And the answer is silence. <laughs> At least a prolonged pregnant pause. And well, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's a lot harder than I ever imagined it would be. But having said that, when you get to a year like this, after fifteen years of growing and producing wine. And you get you get wine that is as 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 really outstanding as this year's are. It's worth all the pain and suffering and that you go through. It really it, if you have the dedication to producing really fine wine, that's the payoff. And. Uh, it was interesting because when I went back to France uh, last year, one of the things that I was struck by and one of the things that, that, that gave me great pause was how close we are 
to following in those footsteps of their own winemakers. And that is a source of great pride. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's definitely, like you said, it's, it's really worth it once you, once you really nail it, once you have a perfect year. It's outstanding. Yeah, just don't look for two in a row. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could happen. It could happen. I wouldn't hold my breath, but I know, it could it, happen. That would be wonderful if it you did. Would. That would be great. Yeah. So I, you talked about, you know, would you do it again uh, and some of that, but what's left the biggest impact on you? Well, it, it really is. It, it's a, a lot of the same answer. The, the impact is, is, is when you get it right. When you produce really, really fine wine, um, that's that's the reward. That's the impact, and that you're part of. In my case, uh, heritage from France that is that is so you know that is centuries old, millennia old. Uh, and following in those footsteps and doing it right, uh, not to, not to dump on California, but Californians have not been doing it for two or three thousand years. True. And uh, is, I love California wines, but they're not old world. They're not France. They're not Italy. Yeah. And. Uh, Again, I became hardwired for the old world stuff, and that's 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 my heritage. That's that's what I bring to this table. So, I think it's wines with a little more finesse, but I think that more really nuance. set it over the top. Yeah. Thank you. That's... So, what is it you want customers to know when they come to visit you? The most important thing that uh, we stress here is that. Uh, Everything here is estate grown. We don't source anything from anywhere else. And uh, if you drink it here, it's grown here. And that's, uh, that's fairly rare in North Carolina. So uh, we're, we're, we're very proud of that. And when you, when you don't source anything, when you are the, the, the single source, you better get it right but you stand a greater chance of getting it right that way than if you source it from other places. So you have more control. Over we have more control over what happens. What in, right. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned this a little bit before, but what are some of the things that you're most looking forward to in the future, both for yourself and also for North Carolina wine? I, oh, for North Carolina wine, it's just more, more, more. There, there's been unbelievable, uh, I remember 10, 12 years ago when wines here were at best hit or miss. And there has been huge improvement in the quality of North Carolina wines. Having said that, they're still not accepted by and large by retailers unless the wine is sweet. Uh, and they're not, they're, not, they're not accepted by restaurants by and large. Uh, it's it's a it's a high barrier, unfortunately, mm -hmm. but people will. You know, to California's credit, they've done a uh, unbelievable job in marketing, uh, and so you will find 
every restaurant predominantly featuring California wines. That is a cost issue because it costs us much more to produce wine than it does to produce it in California when it's done, you know, largely it's all uh, mechanized. Or in Australia, where it's mechanized, fully mechanized, uh, we, we can't do that here. We're too small. You know, they, right. Your largest uh, vineyard's going to be uh, probably children's with 70 to 80 acres of grapes, of vines, and that's... Uh, you know, that, that's tiny by most California standards. Oh, yeah. So that's one of the, you know, that's, that's one challenge. The other is that I wish we had uh, more help from the state of North Carolina, as we've seen happen in Virginia, and, and that has not been particularly forthcoming. But, boy, we could use, uh, you know, for something that's close to two billion dollars in revenue right. <laughs> it's not a small thing and it is growing uh, substantially so I wish that it weren't ignored and that it, it was more widely promoted that's that's what we all wish we could get behind that completely. yeah so we would encourage our listeners if you're passionate about local wine and want to see things move forward contact your local representatives and let them know Absolutely. Uh, that's the way to get started on getting getting more funding for the Wine and Grape Council and research, uh, especially as we face uh, climate change and, and the impacts on growing grapes. Um, there certainly needs to be more research into that. As Michael said, it's almost a $2 billion uh, industry within the state. So it keeps tax dollars here. It, it creates jobs. There's almost 10,000 plus jobs that are created in the industry. Yeah. So it does provide a lot of Things. And there are a lot of people that come to the state um, to visit our wineries, particularly I think Ohio is like a big, uh, we, we see hear that particularly in the Yakin Valley because of 77 and coming down and even now Florida, we're starting to see that. So it's important. It also drives tourism and that's, you get hotels, people stay in <coughs> hotels. There's, there's, so there's plenty of reasons why we should market and continue to try to grow this industry because it contributes so much to the local economy. Yeah, it's tremendous spinoffs, as you said, Joe. It, it's, it's, it, it, does, it, it does things for the state, you know. Absolutely. So any parting words for our listeners, Michael? We hope you'll come visit us. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we exist. And uh, all of us work very hard at what we do. And we can't thank our visitors enough for coming to see us and, and and showing us the greatest compliment by coming out and drinking our wines. We all, as I said, we all work very hard at it. And it's, we, we want to make sure that everybody, as many as possible, enjoy it. And I think the end result definitely speaks to that. Absolutely. Thank you. So, Michael, thank you very much for having us in today. Thank you, guys. I want to thank you So because of all you've done for all of us. I mean, you've, you've worked tirelessly at this. Uh, our, my thanks go out to you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that. We definitely enjoy it. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Michael. As you can tell, he's passionate about growing the best quality fruit to make the best Rhone-style wines he can. 
If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. And did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! <laughs>